Hello, everybody. Welcome to part one of this special two-part birthday Rosh Hashanah edition of Into the Impossible with Brian Keating and Eric Weinstein. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Happy birthday to you. Thank you, my friend. It is great to be with good friends on a special auspicious occasion just after the New Year. Shana Tova, let me be the first to wish you a happy 13 billion, uh, 900 million, 5,782. That's what we cosmologists now say. I see. And can we fine-tune this to the to the Jewish calendar or what? <laughs> yeah, we synchronized. There's some calibration error in the very beginning. Some Lorenz fact. Did I ever tell you my Lorenz factor story? No. There I am, minding my own business, wandering the fourth floor of the American Natural History Museum in uh, New York. And we're going past all the dinosaur fossils, and I see this very proper, firm couple, uh, Orthodox Jews wandering around. And I said, look... Um, I mean, I just ask you guys a question as a co-religionist. Uh, you guys take the, the, the scripture more seriously than I do. Do you believe in the, you know, in the origin story as told in our, in our uh, sacred texts? And they said, of course. And I said, how do you square the fossil record with modern science? And uh, they said, well, uh, we thought about that for a long time, and we decided that if God was moving sufficiently quickly relative to Earth, then the Lorentz factor could account for it all through time dilation. <laughs> so they worked out the speed of God. <laughs> that is, uh, that's quite admirable, I have to say. It's better than the, you know, <clears throat> God put the uh, dinosaurs and made them look like they were old. That, that kind of uh, time dilation is not, is not something I... You might as well learn a little bit of physics. <laughs> That's right. Although I did try to use once uh, the redshift and blue shift effect for a radar gun with a with a police officer, and those were two pretty lonely nights in prison. And <laughs> it's funny. I used the radar gun example as a, a an example of a covector, uh -huh. something that eats velocity vectors along a particular axis and spits out a number in a linear fashion. We don't think about what does a covector look like, but in some <laughs> sense, uh, a contravariant tensor, whatever you want to call it. Um, good example of that is a radar gun. Yes, and radar, of course, one of the two twin uh, inventions of World War II that enabled the uh, the victorious uh, Allied forces to win. And by my reckoning, Eric, and by some of your local tweets, recent tweets, uh, that might have been one of the last things America really won. Uh, maybe the space program, you can argue that was uh, incredibly successful. I want to ask you just yes or no, are you optimistic about the future? No. Okay. Do you think the next 50 years will look anything at all like the preceding 50 years of life of myself on this planet? Not a chance. And I couple those two things, the pessimism or lack of optimism, to be accurate. And no, no, it's not lack of optimism. It's, you're asking me about relative probabilities. And I do believe that most branches of the decision tree are pretty, pretty sour at the moment. Mm -hmm. That is not to say that we don't have remarkable possibilities, but I don't see anyone in a class of people who can move the, the the dial procedurally interested in any of the ideas that come from people who might be able to really contribute something new. So I see that in general, the people who are sitting in the chairs that can get things done or who can command those resources 
uh, are very much trying to make sure that they're on the part of the Titanic that goes down last, but they don't seem to be interested in trying to get off. So. It's so amazing because, you know, today my in-laws called me and, and wished me a very happy California Admission Day. You know, today was uh, September 9th is the day that California, our great state, was admitted to the Union. And I used to look at California when I was a wee lad uh, and think, oh, I'll never be lucky enough to live there and I'll never be uh, have the good fortune to live there. You've lived here for a good deal of your life. Um, how do you think the local factors are affecting your, you know, kind of forecast or your optimism slash pessimism relativity? Factor? Oh, I don't think it's local at all. I mean, we've got a global pandemic. Um, we have, we used to have a lot of really evil leaders that were really talented. Mm-hmm. And maybe you could even argue that we have fewer evil leaders, but they're much, much less talented as well. Now, in the case of a talented, super evil leader, you don't want the person accomplishing their evil deeds efficiently. But it is insane to me that we have been breaking these conventions um, that are part of our culture when we are the nuclear, we're the thermonuclear stewards of the planet for the most part. I I just don't understand this. I, I, look, Brian, you're catching me in a bad moment because it is your 50th birthday and I want to be joyous and positive, but you're asking questions about a world that makes absolutely no sense. And by the way, I would say that when I started making these style points, um, and, you know, years later, even after I started making them, I, when I was doing the edge essays and I was talking about like, you know, professional wrestling will take over the world and all that kind of stuff, or, or the original one about, um, go virtual young man about my coming to grips with the blockchain and because it fell into my, into my line of sight early, those pessimistic predictions and in, in some sense that we had to depart the planet for the electron layer and that everything was going to become fake. I don't think that that's that surprising anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, the number of articles that I've read that have figured out that everything is professional wrestling, <laughs> unaware that there's any prehistory of this concept. Um, this is clear. Look at the CNN numbers. Nobody's watching. Nobody believes. Nobody really thinks that a 78-year-old president makes sense. We just we can't figure out anything better to do. And I really, I don't know. I mean, you can't ask me about hope in, a, in an average sense, because I think there's a lot of things we could do, but we're in no position to do any of them. Yeah, I started to <clears throat> review that. I'm going to have, uh, hopefully, Balaji, uh, our mutual friend, Balaji, and influence on the podcast. And he's just, uh, he makes you, Eric, look like, you know, a cheerful pep squad leader. I mean, and, and, I, and I don't say that lightly uh, or with any disrespect to Balaji. Uh, and I'm anticipating his appearance here in a couple of months. But, um, but you know, hearing this retrace, and then I have to, you know, I'm a contrarian. So I'm going to push back with respect on you and, and to some extent on biology, but to say that uh, that this generation doesn't have even more potential. You know, when you look at our kids, we look at our friends' kids, when you look at the students that I'm blessed to teach here, when you look at the technology, the increase in power, the things that you can do now. I told, I, I was, uh, I interviewed our, our mutual friend Ben Shapiro last week, and I said, Ben, you complain every year, you come out with a new book, you complain about suppression of free speech. Here's your like 10th book in three years uh, about the suppression of free speech. What gives? And by the way, Ben, you c- credit most of the, you know, kind of aggregating uh, annoyance of technology with the suppression. And 
And I said, and we're using this platform right now. I said, Ben, you've got 3 million plus followers on Twitter. You've got this huge Facebook following, YouTube following. You met your wife on Grind, on Tinder. Uh, you uh, have an OnlyFans account. And <laughs> All right. <laughs> I got to go. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he had to admit that this was... Uh, that this was true, that that technology, we have the power in this little app and this phone that you and I are tweeting and Twittering, whatever we're doing. I don't know. This is my second Twitter space ever. But anyway, Eric, we have yeah. more power than the kings and queens of uh, of Queens, of New York, of no, of, uh, of, of, of the ancient world. How can you be pessimistic? This is the greatest time in human history. And we live in the greatest country in human history. Why be pessimistic? This is the weirdest thing is, hang on a second, Brian, could you just open your mouth? Steven Pinker, are you in there? <laughs> um, He's coming back on. No, don't worry. Well, but 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 this is Pinker's bizarre. I, I don't expect physicists to neglect a potential term, right? So, you know, famously ballistic pendulum, you shoot a bullet into a wooden block on a string, block absorbs the bullet and swings up and in fact uh, comes to rest. So where did all the, where did all the energy go? Everything is at rest temporarily. Mm -hmm. And the answer is, well, you converted kinetic into potential. Mm -hmm. So that's what we did. We, we converted our problems into potential problems of catastrophic proportions. Mm -hmm. And of course, if you, uh, if you throw out potential terms, you can get away with all sorts of things. You can get free energy because, uh, Hey, you don't have a, you don't have a conservation law. You can get something for nothing. Your chicks for free. That, that, that kind of thing, um, doesn't really appeal to me because it's it's just a very simple sleight of hand. I, I don't even know why we discuss such things. Well, I furthermore, think... wait, wait, let me just sit, push back a little bit. That power, uh, I think you should have Jeffrey Tubin on your podcast and uh, ask, you know, what does it mean that you can broadcast everywhere to the world, you know, and that you can you can meet from people. I actually asked him, Eric, and he said he doesn't have enough time on his hands. Time on his hands. Come on, that's a quality joke. Give it to me, brother. No. No, I don't like it. It's mean. I don't. It's I don't you know, I've really no. I'm bringing it up because I think that in some sense, I actually, it's one of the things. I I think I'm sick of mean. Mm -hmm. Occasionally, I don't mind a zinger if somebody really, really deserves it. But the fact is that the reason everybody jokes about Jeffrey Tubin is everyone knows the danger of having microphones and video cameras and suffused through your lives that you don't control and don't understand at all times, broadcasting to God knows whom. And by so, which company but, is that? Yeah. Let, let me get to your, your 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 basic point. Yeah, there's a lot to be thankful for. It's been very very peaceful. But uh, you know, uh, many many take You know, the key point is is that uh, Daniel five twenty five is relevant, and um, the writing is on the wall. It just hasn't. It's not evenly distributed in terms of how to understand it. How much of the die was cast in the year of my birth? I mean, the most monumental things that I'm aware of in 1971 involved something really prosaic and and not really known by too many people, and that was the you know the final decoupling of the dollar from uh, from the gold standard in August 15, 1971. <clears throat> I don't remember that, but uh, yeah, but that takes three years, two years actually, to fully unwind until 1973. So you got to be very careful because the Bitcoin community. Yes has monopolized the um, discontinuity. And I really think that Tyler Cowen is probably the tireless force that um, made more people aware of this. It was sort of a cult 
uh, curiosity that 1970, I used to use 73, and then this website appeared called WTF happened in 1971. And by tying it to 1971 precisely, uh, they accomplished the um, feat of fusing the discontinuity of the early 70s with Bretton Woods and the uh, the grand finale of the um, decoupling of uh, our world currencies to convertibility uh, in gold. Now, uh, I'm, I'm irritated by that because it's not their property and it, it really has, I think, to do um, with things that happened upstream from policy. So I really believe that if you look at all of these crazy graphs, um, Tyler was right to focus us uh, there were other people who were part of this cult, um, and I tie it probably to science, that science is upstream of technology, technology is upstream of uh, innovation, and therefore the economy. And I believe it was the fact that science stopped providing the seed corn for this whole growth regime. That, um, that sort of sowed the scenes of our own destruction because the key feature that the U.S. that wasn't understood as an Achilles heel is that it's a very complicated, counterintuitive, enlightenment-based culture. And it has to pay a dividend to keep people interested. Now, I'm happy to be fascinated by free speech and liberty and all of these things sort of for their own sake, but I, th I think that's a minority position. It has to pay off in homes and vacations. And it has to pay off in... in sense of the future. And I believe that the future collapsed. We don't have a picture of life after our own demise that matters to us for the most part. Now you do, and I do, because we have kids. But imagine you didn't have kids. And imagine that um, you didn't necessarily believe in a bearded dude in the cloud or, or an afterlife. How do you make sure that you get people to care about the world beyond their own death. And I don't think we have an answer for that at the moment. This is a, a, a point of serious um, discussion with Sam Harris, my friend, who I believe that he's quite correct that if we could care about our own death reliably and at scale, and the world that follows that, we could be ethical people. But you can't get most people to care about these abstractions unless it somehow pays off for them. So heaven is a dividend. A second home is a dividend. Uh, you know, great prospects for your children is a dividend. And the system stopped paying a dividend and started revealing itself as having a pyramidal structure in the absence of growth. So we're talking with Eric Weinstein. I'm getting some complaints uh, on uh, Twitter that uh, people can't hear you. If you could move the phone a little bit closer to your mouth, uh, I know they'll be. The phone or the mic? Uh, the phone. The mic is totally fine. You're fine yeah, but, on YouTube. But if, I, if you have the phone open, I have the phone in a briefcase. Yeah. It, it's going to cause a feedback loop. Let's try it. Let's do an experiment. All right. This is, uh, this is my one birthday extravaganza. And speaking of my birthday, I would be honored if any of you would give me a follow on Twitter or on, uh, or on YouTube, Dr. Brian Keating, in both locations. I do interviews with the world's brainiest and most fascinating folks from billionaires to Nobel Prize winners to both in the case of Eric Weinstein. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, later on today, we have Eric's friend, uh, Julian Barbour, 
on the podcast talking about uh, his provocative. I do not know Julian Barbour. Well, he knows you, and that's all that matters. And I know of his work. And yes. Appreciate so it. the Janus point will be discussed later on uh, at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. So I do hope you'll tune into YouTube for that. Dr. Brian Keating on every platform that is available. So it's natural to look back, and that's fitting for this uh, term, the Janus point, when you look back and you look forward. At the same time, like the Roman god of, do you know what Janus was the god of, Eric? Pardon me? Do you know what Janus was the Roman god of? Uh, deception. Nope. No, no. He was the god of portals. Portals. Is that right? So, yeah. He was the god that went mm-hmm. forward and backward simultaneously, and he did so in January. That's why January is named after him, because we look back, we look forward. I'm always fascinated by origin stories. Uh, and I want to know, actually, I've never asked you, what got you interested in science to begin with? What's your scientific, your mathematical origin story? Well, um, it, it's a weird question. My father's talked to me about relativistic effects, and... Uh, I'd never heard of length contraction, time dilation. I was a little kid. He used to give me um, legal problems. Like, you know, uh, a guy goes down to the dock to see a boat called Peerless and uh, agrees to purchase it for $100,000, thinking it's a steal. And uh, it turns out that there's another boat called Peerless for $10,000. It's worth $10,000. It's a junker of a boat. What should happen given that the two people had two different models and they agreed to something? So that was the style of problems that he as an attorney would give me. That was called the good ship peerless given to him in law school. And then one day he just sort of sprung on me. What do you think happens when something goes faster than you can imagine close to the speed of light? How would you perceive it? And they started telling me these things and I couldn't believe what he was telling me. It was the most romantic, bizarre, the idea that the universe contains such counterintuition and uh, beauty and, and, and perverse beauty at that, um, I was fascinated by. I think the other thing that really caused me to sort of go towards science is that I came to see most adults as saying wildly incorrect things and just sort of ubiquitously, constantly incorrect, not occasionally they would screw up. Um, and I think that as a kid, I started to believe that more or less the self-description of the world was so wildly off that I couldn't even believe that that was possible. So you have to ask yourself, am I crazy? Um, and one great way to check whether you're crazy is to try to understand some mathematics, some physics, some biology. Can, can I program a computer so that the code compiles? And so in a certain sense, it's also a check. Um, is my brain functioning properly? And I, th- I think that what I learned is, is that um, you're not allowed to analyze the world in which you live without being considered an, uh, insane because the description is so far off. And was this also not communicated to your younger brother, Brett, who is also a scientist who, along with his wife, Heather Hang will be on the Into the Impossible podcast. Thanks to Eric being the shotgun and the shit making the shit up between myself and Brett. And we will host them for their new book, which is wonderful. I'm reading an advanced copy called uh, Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century. I want to ask you about that book. Um, I don't know if you've read it, <clears throat> but um, 
but there's a lot of you in it in a certain sense that uh, the uh, only the biggest, most magisterial kind of concepts are addressed. But in one passage, they say uh, something to the effect uh, they're talking about a Tibetan herdsman and how his epigenetics influence uh, himself and that he essentially passes on his genes uh, by by sheer force of will because there's nothing else for genes to do but reproduce. And I thought that was a little bit teleological. It was ascribing this kind of machination or thought process to what is, in, in essence, uh, not only in the case of DNA, but uh, cultural epigenetic uh, manifestations. These are not things that can be really thought to have purpose. What do you make of that? Do genes have teleology? Do they know what they're doing? Do they have a pur- If so, how could they possibly know that? <coughs> Um, well, not in the standard description. Um, you know, th- th- there's a key question about, is there any kind of a look ahead function so that anything can have purpose? And I think, um, you know, the way Brett developed it, uh, he, he came up with a, a term that I quite like, which is perception mediated selection. Um, when you can, pres- when you're conscious, see, there's a, the, there's an old question about what is consciousness. And one of the theories is that consciousness is what is uh, that which can possibly direct non-smooth muscle to contract is one of the theories. <laughs> and, you know, you think like, well, that's kind of a weird, <coughs> a weird generating function for something like consciousness. But the point is, is that directing your body to do things, eat this and not that, um, you know, make an advance uh, romantically on this person and forego that person. All those sorts of basic reproduction, fighting, um, eating, evading predators. That may be the the sort of the, the reason for consciousness. And I think that once you have agency, um, I'm very fond of of pointing out that intelligent design is actually weirdly part of Darwin um, through perception-mediated selection. Now, people don't like that, the idea that you can choose, for example, to make a a mule by crossing a donkey and a horse, and you can choose to breed those lines independently in order to make more mules. You are intelligently designing the mule. Now, the reason that scientists don't like that is they want to put a perimeter around the word intelligent design because they want that term to to result in instant death. Now, I don't believe that Jesus belongs in discussions of selection, and I don't like the the religious explanations, the young earth stuff. But there are also a lot of scientists, incidentally, who are religiously motivated to try to figure out selection paradigms and Darwinian paradigms. Um, to make them work because they don't feel that the current understanding of selection, particularly the neo-Darwinian sort of synthesis, is valid. Um, And this issue about how purpose arises, now I'm sort of, I take an atheist scientific perspective, which is that purpose grew up in our consciousness, or to some extent in our subconsciousness, as an aid to fitness. So the idea is that that which aids in fitness is retained uh, on average. Um, that's how I think it goes. But somebody else might say, you're just ignoring how miraculous life is and the fact that it occurred here may be a sign of purpose. And I think that there are people with whom you can have that conversation 
who are scientifically honest and religiously motivated. And they're people with whom you can't have that conversation who are either um, crazy from, you know, they've got, they're Jesus addled uh, and they're scripture addled, or they are so um, focused on getting rid of religion that they become irrational. And you see that particularly in some of the older Darwinians uh, who would like to say we, we tied everything up with a bow in the early 70s and there's no need to revisit it because we killed God and, uh, and the deed is done. That's right. <clears throat> there is no God and Dawkins is his prophet. But in, in Well, you're, you're repurp repurposing an old joke about Paul Dirac and right. so I would caution you not to. Okay. I will say about <clears throat> Paul Dirac, he was not only the inventor of the antiparticle, but he was sort of the anti-Eric in the sense that it uh, was said of Dirac that he would never use two words, Eric, when none would do. He was not very loquacious, as they say. Um, go ahead. You're going to rise to Well, Paul's, first of all, I mean, the, the closest analog to Paul Dirac, if we're going to do physics history, as you well know, um, was it Oppenheimer's letter of recommendation? It said a sec uh, Feynman was a second Dirac, but this time human. Um, the important aspect of Paul Dirac is not the quirks of his personality. And I do think that Graham Farmello did a wonderful job raising the issue of autism and neurodivergence in the case of Paul Dirac. But Paul Dirac uh, said quite a lot for a guy who was supposed to be silent. And uh, in particular, I think he is the most courageous in that he was, he and Einstein and Yang were all willing to chip away at the fairy tale we tell about the scientific method. And Dirac's, in particular, his 1963 Scientific American article points out that um, a kind of naturality, which often gets called beauty, which is confused, and I think, um, by the string theorists, and Sabine Hassenfelder has gone into this at great length. But Dirac's concept of beauty, different from the string theory concept of beauty, is one of robust co intellectual coherence, and that we should privilege systems that have robust intellectual coherence because the agreement with experiment is highly dependent upon uh, the instantiation of an, of an abstract idea. So if you choose a slightly different uh, instantiation, you may show zero agreement with the experiment, even though the basic idea is right. And uh, I would say that um, I, I am not the anti-Dirac by any means, um, nor was Feynman. He was a pro-Diracist, and I'm a pro-Diracist, and I think that the, uh, the superficial aspects of personality um, are orders of magnitude less interesting. Yeah, and when I think about <clears throat> uh, these uh, notions as we were talking about uh, origins of life and and of uh, consciousness just a minute ago, I couldn't help but think of my uh, my uh, friend Stephen Meyer who wrote a book, The God Hypothesis, and how it dovetails with something you said over a year ago now, I think, on the portal. And you were talking about Schrodinger states in society, in culture. Uh, you are talking about the reason that we fight about things like abortion, which is in the news, or... Uh, ending military conflict or Second Amendment, etc., is because uh, we can't really handle the quantum superposition needed to have uh, subtle, distinct, nuanced discussions. And 
I was thinking about that in the context of origin of life, because it is true that there is no explanation uh, in any cosmological sense of the low entropy state of the origin of the universe. Uh, there's no uh, there's no code or something that traces itself to a low entropy state, which is not in some level organized by some mind, as, as Stephen points out. Um, and that's not proof of God. You know, my as I've told you in the past, my, my problem with origin of God, origin of life, and all these things is that it always will, at some point, ag have to agitate for a personal God. But uh, but in the context of, of things like these superposition states, another one that you and I have talked about a lot is uh, the existence of aliens and unidentified aerial phenomena, where it's, it's not clear that one side has the monopoly on correctness. And I wonder, you know, how, how many of these Schrodinger states can a society handle? Uh, you know, we're getting we've, we've got to cut it out. This is getting absolutely absurd. I mean, let me go back to my own. I don't know why I have a, a, an interpretation of quantum mechanics that I don't know who to reference it to, but I don't know who other than me says it this way. The weird thing about quantum mechanics is that, or quantum theory more generally, is that you get to ask bad questions uh, of a system and the system responds by giving you answers when it really shouldn't. And that's a puzzle to me where if you say um, of, a, of a state, you know, are we in a situation where we need freedom or we need safety uh, when you're talking about the coronavirus? Um, clearly, we both want freedom and safety and we want to somehow balance them in a free society. To say you will only accept one or the other is madness and that's what a quantum question is it's where you're asking um a superposition well which are you you know are, are you catholic or protestant are, are, are you uh, pro-soviet or against the soviet there's no idea of anyone saying i actually really appreciate uh you know some aspect of the soviet union and, and i really detest others so this all or nothing thinking sort of asking inappropriate questions of superposition states. Mm -hmm. And that's what quantum theory does. It gives you artificial answers at random. Uh, whereas classical uh, theory tells you you're asking a terrible question. Now, questions are called observables. Answers are called eigenvalues. And um, the answers that are on the multiple choice portion of the exam are called eigenstates. And you ask a question where the answer isn't any one of the multiple choice answers. It's some combination of them, and that's not something you can opt for. So I think that in, in a weird way, there is a parallel in our society where we're not allowed to ask good questions that speak to quantum superpositions, um, at least they're analog in questions of policy. <clears throat> where do you see us going now? Let's get controversial. Uh, with science, with the role of science as the replacement for religion, for gods, for deities, where do you see us going where science is, is sort of being politicized? Not sort of. Well, let me just be bold and say it. <clears throat> uh, science is being politicized. It's being used as a as a cudgel. And I wonder, you know, how, if we rely on science. You know, Carl Sagan used to say, here, I'm going to bring in my finger puppet. It's my birthday. I can use as many damn finger puppets as I want. Okay, there's my finger puppet, man. I'm going to give you the finger. Carl Sagan used to say it's a real tragedy when a society 
as unbridled technology and no understanding how it works. And uh, but I think now now we have you know kind of almost the like we have worship of science we have uh, integrated science completely technology and uh, and we're sort of worshiping science and so where do you, where do you see that going is that is that the uh, is that the reason for pessimism about the next fifty years when we turn a hundred I don't even know how to answer this question nobody's really well first of all science isn't in one state. Um, and, and I, I would like to bring this sort of to the um, 1971 through 73 uh, issue that you used to sort of launch this episode. Biology has a million things to do because the phylogenetic tree uh, fanned out in all different directions. And so, you know, if you, if you understand something in fruit flies, do you understand it in zebrafish? Do you understand the same thing in C. elegans, the nematode, uh, or, or, or in... Um, you know, muse spiritus or something. You can ask the same question a bunch of different times, and there's no shortage of systems. So we're no, we're nowhere close to exhausting biology. Mm-hmm. Is it as exciting as the ten years between the discovery of the double helix uh, for DNA and its understanding as the genetic code by Marshall Nirenberg uh, a decade later? I don't know. You can you can figure that out for yourself. Is, is it as exciting as the Operon, the pajama experiments? I don't think so, but. You can make a good case that things are plenty interesting, and I, I wouldn't disagree with that. Math has been proceeding apace. Um, there have been lots of great things that have happened. What the heck happened to physics is the really interesting question, because its behavior was very different. Um, the last person, the youngest person, I think, to really contribute to the standard model turned 70 this year. Um, so there are no, there are no young women or men who've contributed to the standard model, uh, under the age of 70 and that loss of physics, I don't think people understand how catastrophic it it is because physics has, has passed like thermonuclear weapons out of the public consciousness. And it's the only, it's the only subject that has really powered the economy um, at the level of growth that we've seen uh, through semiconductors, through communications and uh, electromagnetic spectrum, what have you, uh, through the World Wide Web, which came out of CERN. When we lose physics, we lose also hope. And I, and I really think that this goes back to the alien question. Let's assume that aliens are here. Um, and just stipulate to that for the moment to explore that branch of the decision tree because people are terrified to even say those words. Mm-hmm. If they are here, do we think that we, they got here through time dilation uh, you know, from distant galaxies and that they've just accepted that the cost of exploring the cosmos is that you never get to see anyone again? I don't know. Most likely not. Most likely, if there were aliens here, and this, this is something I think I haven't said fully in public, um, they would be here because somebody somewhere in the galaxy would not only know about Einstein, but would know about a theory that did to Einstein what Einstein did to Newton, which is to render, um, you know, Newtonian physics is a limit of Einsteinian physics. Now the question is, what is Einsteinian physics the limit of? And so when people think about, is it possible to traverse the cosmos, they always say things that are really very puzzling to me. One of which is, you must be talking about faster than light communication, faster than light travel. 
And I always say, well, no, you're trapped in an Einsteinian paradigm where that's the only way to do things in, in, in your understanding. But if you have a, a more complete theory, it may be able to evade the speed limit, like knowing a shortcut, um, rather than, you know, zooming around on a ring road. Um, you know, if you can go across the middle of the road, for example, you can show up someplace far faster than somebody would imagine if you had to traverse a much longer path. So I personally think that if you want to imagine that humans survive, the odds of us surviving on a single terrestrial surface where every stupid person has a vote, and imagine that you have an Elon Musk, not of a space program, but somebody who has their own individual nuclear weapon, you know? Um, when you start to democratize, democratize the power of the nucleus of the, of the cell and, and of the atom, mm -hmm. it's very dangerous for all of us to be on the same surface because you could have a virus escape from, from a lab. You could have a, a nuclear exchange whose radioactive fallout uh, you know, gives us very few places to hide. We've got to fan out. And if there's an opportunity to leave, We've got to take it, not because this isn't a great place, but because we have to diversify so that we're not all in the same experiment. Now, I don't want to be in an experiment with, uh, I don't want to be in an experiment with our current leadership. I don't want to be in an experiment with an anti-scientific world that is depending on science, hating science, abusing science. I want to use science so that we can separate, so that people who have full belief in you know total freedom or total safety or believe that two plus three equals a chicken or whatever that it is that they believe they need their own planets and they need to explore those ideas on their own planets. And those of us who basically want to build our families, build our knowledge of the world, try to be decent to each other, be open to markets, but recognizing that they have failures. People who want to lead a more reasonable life need a divorce from people who think that you can continue with you know, like the fourth turning model. Oh, you know, it's, it's a cycle and it always goes through. No, it doesn't always go through this. As I've come to say, um, strong men make good times and nuclear weapons. Good times make weak men. Weak men and nuclear weapons make end times. Don't, don't give me any more of this infinite cycle nonsense. Um, so, you know, my feeling about this is aliens are hope in part if there were aliens here, I would say that the odds that the Einsteinian theory is merely an effective theory um, shoot way the heck up. It means that those singularities of Schwarzschild and the initial singularity of the cosmological models are telling us that the theory isn't complete and that there's probably a way of evading the speed limit without breaking it. So that's, that's, that's the madness I'm willing to share with you on your brain. When I think about uh, these, these notions, again, not to bring it too much back to your brother's new book, but he makes a powerful point that, you know, the fundamental element of society is the campfire and around the campfire tales would be told and stories would be woven and nonfiction would be told as well. Here's how you catch a rabbit. Uh, here's how you, you know, put what kind of cream to put on a, a burn, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And no one person and the message I take away interpreting in my own way, no one person can have all the information. And that's kind of arguably, uh, or, you know, another 
another reason for diversity, if one can use such a term, uh, and that we need sort of, no, since nobody can have it all, maybe the guy who believes in, uh, <clears throat> you know, in something kooky and two plus two equals a chicken, uh, maybe he or she, they think that uh, they know the best way to weave a net to get, not let the minnows go through. Uh, how do you, in other words, how do you know who to, uh, what, what, what's bathwater and what's baby? Uh, I have to say, I've gotten completely bored of this question and it's not nothing against you, but we are living in a time that, um, that privileges this idea of like no one person and we're all a community and we're all getting so stupid. Um, look at the Patriot Act, you know, uh, one person opposed the Patriot Act in the Senate, Senate. And that was Russ Feingold. And, I, you know, it's a community. It's a coming to get. No, stop it. Russ Feingold was right. The rest of you idiots were wrong. It was very clear. This was a, a degradation of our freedoms. And one guy has the ball. Period. The end. There is no more. That's the way I view it. Very often, and it's nothing against the campfire and the beauty of Kumbaya and all that stuff. Um, sometimes things are broadly distributed. Sometimes, as you know, famously Freeman Dyson, the physicist, needed Freeman Dyson, the mathematician, but the two of them weren't talking to each other, mm -hmm. um, even though they both lived inside of the same brain case. First, first uh, uh, guest on the Into the Impossible podcast, Freeman Dyson. Time. <laughs> okay. But what I'm trying to get at is um, you don't know what time you're in. And I haven't read what Brett said about but the campfire is not the fundamental unit of, of, of human civilization. Um, you know, any, any, any more do, do orca pods have, uh, have campfires. It's an abstraction. Do they have uh, culture though? Sure. They have culture. Bacteria have culture, but I mean, there's culture and there's culture. Uh, again with the dad jokes. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that, I, I think that the point is that, um, you know, that, He's, he's saying something important, but I don't want to have to comment on whether the campfire is the fundamental unit of civilization. I want to ask, why, why are uh, Peter <coughs> is uh, mentioning on uh, Twitter, our, our friend uh, Peter McCormack, he's saying we should have the creator on uh, of this website, what the F happened in. I don't want to have another Bitcoin conversation. I love I know, Peter McCormack. <laughs> I love, but but, but, but it, seriously, you don't get to repurpose the 1970s thing as just some simplistic thing about Bretton Woods, Bitcoin and real money and Austrian economics. And I'm also sort of sick of the whole cyber hornet phenomena where anybody who dares say anything against Bitcoin, you know, there's also a harassment issue in that community. And that sure, sure. harassment. Yeah, I don't okay, about that. I don't, but again, you, you talk to Brett about the campfire, talk to Peter McCormick about 1971 in Bretton Woods. I personally think that this is completely misguided. The danger. It's like what Black Lives Matter did to everybody's frustration. It took everybody's frustration and said it's all about George Floyd. And the Bitcoin people said the early 1970s is all about Bretton Woods, which it isn't. Right. And, and not, it's not all about the campfire. This goes back to the issue of these are simplistic perspectives where we've got to pull back. And, you know, physics needs to restart our economy and get us off the planet. And this, all these ideas that we're going to become wise or our money is going to solve everything. Bitcoin fixes this, Bitcoin fixes everything. No, 
we, we need to separate. We need distance from each other. Some of us are so dangerously confused. And, and think about somebody who, like, for example, doesn't accept physics and doesn't accept the law of the excluded middle because they came through some critical theory department that tells you everything is relative. That person is broadcasting their message through code that they do not understand and could not actually do themselves using their theories, using zeros, ones, the electromagnetic spectrum, engineering talents, all sorts of things that they reject. And then we build this entire thing for them to broadcast, hey, you know, that's just your opinion, man. <laughs> it's just like, I, you need your own planet. You get a planet and you get a planet and you get a planet and I don't want to be on any of your planets. I want to be on planets with sensible people. One of my kids likes to play a game called Solar Smash where you literally nuke different planets with high-powered lasers from some vantage point in space. Um, why are so many economics professors poor? Uh, I want to get to Elon Musk and your and his retweeting or liking you, uh, et cetera. And, and by the way, uh, I, I wonder, you know, I heard yesterday, you know, some famous guy, this guy, Chris Rufo, I think he he got unverified from Twitter. And I was like, well, that's that's, you know, like my, yeah, we, my look, we've all accepted that all of our conversations are adulterated. Right. Yeah. Like if, if, if you look at craft singles and it says American cheese product or something like that. Um, cheese flavored. Why? Well, <laughs> you know, and you're surprised that, the, that there's some weird ingredients in that. It's not just coming out straight out of a cow. Um, yeah, I don't. Ask the question again. I just, I, why are so many professors of economics poor? Um, first of all, economics basically splits into two categories. There are people who are vying for power and there are people who are mm -hmm. trying to do sort of technical work. Um, and in general, I don't find them to be the same people. Uh -huh. So the microeconomists in general are not trying to get to Jackson Hole and, you know, conferences to figure out how the Fed should steer things, whatnot. Um, I, I think that the, the basic problem is that it appeals to a very rigid mind. So you, if you build everything around homo economicus, which is what we did historically, which is this model that clearly doesn't represent how human beings actually are in the world, you tend to select for very rigid thinkers who have a particular penchant for finding surprising things that people, lies that people tell themselves and each other. So famously, uh, a professor of economics who we're familiar with suggested that no one should give gifts because it's much more efficient to give cash. Um, and that's what economists have historically liked to do. They, they have this idea that relentlessly and unflinchingly they apply um, tools of utility maximization. This is sort of a definition due to Gary Becker, um, finite constraints, and they try to turn humans into robots and make the robots maximally efficient. And if that's what appeals to you, um, it's very likely that you're not going to be very effective in, um, in amassing wealth. I mean, particularly if you're doing global macro trading. Global macro is a very strange thing. If you have real macro economists, because you can invest in macro instruments, uh, why would any true um, macro economist need to pester the government for taxpayer dollars if they had theories about the future that gave them an understanding of the world? Uh, they should be able to speculate their way into wealth. And it turns out to be much harder. So it's weirdly adversely selected for people 
who claim that they can understand macroeconomics, but in fact, uh, through their applications for grants, reveal that they don't know how to predict the future. So now my follow-up, you walked right into my trap. <clears throat> sprung on you my birthday present for today uh talking oh to eric, eric weinstein proprietor of the portal podcast and other plosive uh things that you can find on the world wide web uh contained within walled gardens such as uh, uh throttled accounts and so forth and verified blue check marks etc etc uh but you can get me a birthday present you can subscribe to my uh youtube channel dr brian keating i'm talking with dr julian barbour later on today at noon and i have conversations with michael saylor and peter schiff and i also have nine nobel prize winners soon to be 10 and maybe even 11 or 12 uh, for my new book think like a nobel prize winner comes out in two weeks can pre-order everywhere books are to be pre-ordered uh but eric uh the reason i brought up economic what makes you think that physics professors are any different in other words why are they broke so to speak uh in the sense that not a whole lot of them, you know, would I, A, trust to watch my kids, or B, trust to fix my, my uh, 1979 Volkswagen Rabbit? Come on. It, if you gave physicists money and autonomy, and you let them get back to their actual culture, wouldn't you trust them a whole lot more than you do right now? <coughs> and I think this is the thing that's really, really irritating me. Why... If you ask, do I, do I trust the NIH? Do I trust the CDC? Do I trust my government? Well, the answer, of course, right now is no. But it, it's very leadership dependent. And I don't trust physicists right now because physicists are induced to lie in order to survive. And whenever you tell somebody, hey, we're going to put you under total transparency, we're going to starve you for resources, we're going to make you reapply, re-justify yourself constantly, what is somebody supposed to say? Hey, the field hasn't moved in 50 years. It's incredibly hard. I want to diverge from the what are thought to be the smartest people in the world and what they believe because I think they're all crazy. That's what you have to do to be a physicist now and function in theory. And so in general, um, I would trust very, very wealthy physicists in, in theory in particular, and there just aren't very many of them. And the reason is because... Physics, like music, is a fatal attraction. Why the theory? I mean, obviously, I'm battling the Upton Sinclair urge to advocate for something on whom, on which my paycheck depends. I'm an experimental physicist. And to be an experimental physicist, one needs to know an awful lot of theory, just not have the ability to do theory. Uh, but we've revolutionized the universe in a practical sense. All the things you mentioned from uh, the transistor, uh, the laser, the uh, telecommunications, those all came from experiment. In fact, some of them came from particle physics or radio astronomy. So okay, great. So let's talk about the experiment that you want to do that revolutionizes. I have nothing against experiment leading theory, but you have to appreciate. Sabina is quite correct about some things and wrong about others, for example. Mm -hmm. I think she's quite correct that the current crop of physicists is widely uh, suffused with crazy ideas that have been very destructive of the culture of theoretical physics. On the other hand, I don't see the experiment that somebody's itching to do on a tabletop that is likely, I mean, to, to, to change everything. So if there is a precision experiment, we don't always have to go higher and higher energies. We can go to higher and higher precision, or we can do something super clever that nobody thought to do. But 
I don't see the, the, the great puzzle of where we are in physics right now is that the system almost closes prematurely. Mm-hmm. Right. And so with the Higgs field, it, but for dark energy and dark matter, you could make an argument. Maybe this is all there is. Maybe there isn't anything more than three generations of fermions and a bunch of bosons, and it's kind of a mess, and it's kind of beautiful, and that's what it is, and why do you think there's more to be had? That is the great danger about what befell us. And to be blunt, I don't think you guys have the money, the skills, the energy levels, or the precision, or the idea about what experiment to do, unless, like, let's say this muon anomaly turns out to be right, or something like it. Um, to lead us out of this valley. And in, in particular, I'm not scared by experimentalists trying to do theory as well. I would like to see more unified minds that aren't either soldering something in a tunnel uh, in Switzerland um, or, or, at a, or at a whiteboard. I'd like but, to see yeah. somebody who's, who's doing both. But I think it's a little bit oversimplified. I mean, again, all the things you're talking about, getting off the planet, uh, you know, Werner von Braun didn't look into the rocket equation and Newton, and oh, let me devise our Goddard 100, you know, 80, 30 years earlier. These are, uh, these are tinkerers. These are innovators. These are inventors. These are explorers and experiment. And I, I know you didn't come to, you know, have a battle royale about the, you know, uh, Coke versus Pepsi experiment versus theory. I think a healthy environment has both. And some of the best physicists you've already mentioned. We all agree on that. That's not what we're yeah. disputing. What I'm trying to say is, is, is much more repugnant and horrible and awful than that, which is where are we going to find the Feynmans, the Duracs, the Einsteins, and the Yangs? And okay, you have great experimentalists, but the power of the human mind to think this thing through with nothing more than a whiteboard it's it's incredibly unfortunate that we have a group of graying physicists almost no you know look under 70 nobody's made contact <laughs> from fundamental theory um, with experiment essentially for th- that's an insane situation so it's very hard for me to continue to point and say hey the system really works but you know what the system really works the problem is the transparency nobody wants to say this where who's got a slush fund we need slush funds where you can just dip into a drawer and say, yeah, I'm paying you for three years. Well, why should Elon do that or Jim Simons? Why shouldn't it be the government? Uh, why don't we have you know, more agitation on behalf of the lipstick equivalent of our budget going to NASA and you know, how many the dancing videos on TikTok can one have? So, Sorry, I'm not sure what the question is. Should our government be doing it? So I think the government's the only... Jim Simons and Elon, yeah, of course. You're saying where there is no, you know, man, uh, step in. Yeah, and, and, uh, the, the government, the government is in a contract that it's welching on, right? And, and, and the idea that it is not a signed contract where we didn't go to a lawyer and say, hey, I love you so much. Let's get a lawyer and, and paper the prenup so that uh, we, can, we can get it on. This is craziness. We had an agreement. The government welched. And we're not allowed to patent things. You know, like for example, I thought about the fact that many of my academic colleagues think nothing of the idea that they should be able to put anybody's name on whatever it is that they want. <laughs> so you do the work, somebody else's name, hey, it's just the Matthew effect, it's just the Matilda effect, it's mm-hmm. nothing personal. Oh, you know, 
nobody, you, you can't work on your own theory. Well, science progresses funeral by funeral. We've got all of these ways of excusing the fact that the system fell apart. We call it the Matthew effect, the Matilda effect, and funeral by funeral, for example. Um, we discourage people at every possible stage. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. Correlation does not imply causation. All of our thinking that is meant to keep us honest and safe so that we don't think, you know, that we've achieved something like we haven't, as in string theory, um, that kind of thinking has now been repurposed to try to terrify anybody from moving and from doing things. Imagine that Dirac told you that uh, he'd taken a square root of the Klein-Gordon equation and that the only thing is is that the num numerical coefficients uh, weirdly anti-commuted. So he was looking for numbers like 7 and 3 where 3 times 7 was equal to negative 7 times 3. And you'd say, well, that's stupid. Right? But then you don't realize, oh, they're matrices, not numbers. And in two years or three months or four hours, he's going to realize it's matrices. Well, now what we're doing is we're shutting everyone down. We're making everybody talk about their work. We're taking people's names off of their own work, handing it to somebody else. We're making them apply for grants repeatedly. We're scrutinizing each other's stuff. It's just so dumb. We need a culture where we're in control of our own ship and everyone else can get the hell out. And we, we know how to make that work. That's why you have leaders of the field, like an Oppenheimer. And sometimes those leaders would you know, disagree with each other as, as Teller and Oppenheimer did, let's say, okay. But effectively, we need the bureaucrats the hell out of our subject. We need the educators out of our subjects. We need lower level people who tend to think about everything in cut and dry terms out of the subjects. We need to reinvigorate these subjects with imagination, with resources, and of course it should be the government, and of course they should either honor their uh, understanding of the agreement or let us patent the semiconductor, the World Wide Web, the electromagnetic spectrum, and, and, uh, and we'll just charge them a royalty and we'll fund it that way, and physicists will be flying around in their Gulf Streams and everybody else can be on a Greyhound bus, however you want to do it. And then they'll have portraits hanging in their offices in their $1,000 Eames chairs, uh, and then uh, it'll all get taken away, and we won't have toys to play with. Well, that's a reference to the S uh, SSC, where um, we angered certain members of Congress, in particular uh, Sherwin Bollert, I believe, mm -hmm. um, by... Uh, physicists saying we want nice things in our offices. We want to be part of the world that we're powering. And I used to, I've, I've changed my mind on that. I used to think physicists were arrogant pricks uh, who wanted to put portraits in their office and pretend that they were titans of industry or something like that. My new view is they're arrogant pricks who deserve to put portraits in their offices. Because someone has to, and why not us? Uh, no, I, I mean, I agree there should be prestige, but I, as I said, I think we have an awful lot of prestige, some earned, some not. And I think that, you know, there is sort of an overestimate uh, in your opinion of, you know, what the, both on the negative and on the positive, you know, how dire the situation. I think we have incredibly inventive young physicists in both theory and experiment. And I think uh, there is certainly a lack of funding and resources. But then again, you get people like your friend Elon. I know he's not your friend, but uh, you I've did tweet never, with him. Never spoken with him. I'm sure you could arrange that in about 20 minutes. But I don't think so. I think he may want to avoid it, and I want to be sure 
that if he wants to, there's no reason to avoid it, right? Like he's a yeah. physics guy. Yeah. He wants to get off this planet. Went to your alma mater. Pardon me? He was a physicist at your alma mater. True. But my point is, for whatever reason, he knows I'm out here. He's liked my tweets. We've interacted slightly on, on, on Twitter. People don't understand that when somebody doesn't want to do something, you don't know why he doesn't want to do something. I don't want to put him in a bad spot. Of course. Um, do I disagree with the way in which he's, he's allocated his portfolio of options on how to get off the planet? I don't understand it. I really, really, I'm, nothing confuses me more than why Elon hasn't bet on physics and why he's betting on rockets. On the other hand, what do I know? I mean, maybe it's an arrangement with the government that I can't see. Maybe it's this, maybe it's that. Maybe he doesn't want to talk for a good reason. I'm not going to have a nonsense conversation with him where I just talk about rockets and Occupy Mars. If I talk to him, I would want to talk to him, and it could be privately, about tell me how you see. I want to listen more than I want to speak. How do you see the crisis in theoretical physics, and why are you so unmotivated to get involved with it? I mean, you saw what happened uh, just over the summer with uh, people claiming that perhaps the aliens visiting us are just bored billionaires from another uh, space-faring oh, civilization. I, I can't take these conversations anymore. This is just, it's like, we, we've learned, I think it was when, around the time I, I saw people saying, number go up. <laughs> you know, or orange man bad. Right. Or, but those mean tweets. Right. It's like, this is not... I don't even understand what. Kind no, of I'm just saying, where where is the upside for him? He's got you know people criticizing him, Bernie Sanders, Robert Reich, my colleague up at UC Berkeley. You know his wealth increased by. By the way, how can an economist, a professor of economics, who was like with their Treasury secretaries, how can he know that his he didn't get like six billion dollars worth of cash? You know because Tesla went up. It's it's the stock went up or Bezos. They're the vilification of these people who are putting it all betting. Maybe they're not doing it your way. But why are you and I discussing? Robert Reich. I just don't understand this. Like, okay, some old guy from the Clinton administration, who the hell cares? And, you know, the, the, the thing, you know, Glenn Greenwald was just talking about CNN's numbers have plummeted. There's some point at which we just have to say, why do we even talk to the people who constantly are jealous? Um, why do we talk to the people who are maximally confused? Okay, so we can find some professor somewhere uh, who tells us that the rules of arithmetic are the, pro uh, the product of, uh, you know, uh, Scottish imperialism, whatever. That person needs their own room, their own conference. They need to just go away from people who are trying to get work done. And we can't keep wasting our time because Robert Reich is confused about the money supply and how stock markets fluctuate. You know, is, is he there when, when he says, wow, you know, I hope, I hope you guys are having a better day than Elon. He lost $4 billion today. Okay. <laughs> right. Well, yes, the stock is swinging around. But, like, look at, look at monetary aggregates M1 through M3. When you print more dollars, when you, when you create more money, um, every equity is, an ex is priced as an exchange rate, right? It's an exchange between the equity and the fiat currency that functions as the numeraire, the, the unit of account. So if you print a ton of money, what are you, what are you doing to that exchange rate? You're, you're devaluing and diluting the holders of the dollar, and you're privileging 
those who hold equities. And this is what the Bitcoin people get right, you know, which is, hey, it's a bet against the competency of our system. We bet that the Federal Reserve and central bankers are going to have to print their way out of a system that makes no sense. And when they do, we're going to have a token that we don't see as being um, printable easily. So there'll be 21 million tokens in all, and we'll just count on the fact that you have to print in order to lie. And that's what we're doing. So, you know, yes, but I don't want to talk. I don't. Here's the thing, Brian. I want to spend our time differently. So we're both over 50. Let's try not to have the crazy people drive our conversation, the bitter people, the unethical people. Um, we need to actually drive our own conversations and we need to stop talking to them. Thanks for listening to part one of this special Rosh Hashanah birthday deep dive edition of Into the Impossible with Brian Keating and Eric Weinstein. Part two gets even better. Send Brian a birthday present by going to briankeating.com and subscribing to his mailing list. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Please support the show by rating, commenting, sharing, and leaving reviews. We appreciate hearing from you, and it really helps keep our universe expanding. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating. That's D-R, Brian Keating. And join our premieres Tuesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Follow Brian on Twitter and Medium, and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. For exclusive content, visit Brian Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter at briankeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Produced by Stuart Volko and Brian Keating. <laughs>